right, so back to that period. Um, many of the older original uh, dating systems put his death at about 480, 470 B.C. But more modern research, especially in regard to uh, known of the lineage rulers of the time, it looks to be about that he died about 406, 407 B.C., mm-hmm. which was later than the time uh, uh, that they originally had, had postured. But it's still 5th century B.C. Yep. Even though actually it's only 400 B.C., but his lifespan was then, if he lived to be uh, 80, then that meant that the time that they had posted that they thought he had died was actually about the time that he was born. Mm. Yeah. Which is about 480, 490 B.C., and he died in then 407. We also know quite a bit about the lineage of rulers down to King Asok, who became uh, uh, ordained as uh, emperor in about 310 B.C., and by uh, 278 B.C., uh, Buddhism was all the rage because of the royal lineage. Is uh, King Asok the one who... I, I heard there was an emperor who had the the teachings um, engraved on pillars somewhere. Is that All him? over the place, yes. Yeah. They're still discovering them. Oh. In fact, one of the big discoveries was done in the middle 1980s when they found, through to the pillar marking, exactly where Lumpini was. As popular and as important as Lupini was, uh, they didn't have any real evidence of where it is. But now that they've undug uh, one of the uh, uh, pillars that Ashok had planted, saying that this was the birthplace of the Buddha. You see, where he was, his, his mother was in transportation because she was on the way from the palace where they knew that was and mm-hmm. the, uh, the destination of her uh, father, uh, who was a king, and she was going home to give birth to her, uh, and it, uh, uh, she wound up giving birth along the way. So that's part of the problem is, is that it's a remote location anyway. Mm. And so, yes, Asok then put a pillar there at the best, and, and uh, if this was only 150 or so uh, years after the death of the Buddha, then they have a better understanding of exactly where it was mm-hmm. yeah. than they do now, just by archaeology. Then that, but anyway, that the archaeology, that's what they dug up, is they dug up the, one of the pillars that Asok had put down. He put down mileposts. He built roads. He planted trees along the sides of the roads. He put way stations along the way for mm. travelers. So he really opened things up that way. And on uh, the post that he did along his highway was, in fact, writings or sayings of the Buddha. And so these posts are dotted all over uh, India based upon the road systems that they had at the time. But another thing that uh, happened was is that I don't remember the names of all the kings, but it does start with Bimbisara and his son 
and I forgot the son's name, who did actually the first council. Now, fast forward to great-great-great-grandsons, uh, and this is who uh, King Ahsok is. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, but by that time, things had gotten really bloodthirsty. There was a lot of warfare going on. And right. uh, uh, at one point in time, some monks got locked up. And so uh, he, he came to know them and reestablished uh, the fact that Buddhism was very strong in this area. In fact, this is the heartland of, the, of Buddhism. But when King Asok rediscovered from his uh, great-grandfathers uh, uh, this thing, um, the, the real value of it, that's when he went really gung-ho into the mm. teachings of Buddha. And because of that, he, uh, it became kind of a state religion. A religion is not a religion at all, a state of no religion. And that many of the mendicants and, and people from all of the other religions joined because of all of the free grub and uh, uh, clothing and monastery space and uh, mm. uh, room and board and, and lodging and, and robes and all of that kind of stuff. And so it became overwhelmed. Okay. It became overwhelmed to the point that the teachers who were keeping the teachings of the Buddha alive and rocking along so that it, it was the core of it was nobles. Now that so many had come, now the students are teaching each other what they know rather than being able to get good access to a good teacher. And this caused uh, quite a consternation among the nobles, and so they decided to have a council, but they decided that they were only going to have a council that allowed nobles into the council. Now, you might imagine that nobles who know noble things can ask noble questions and uh, gain uh, noble answers, but there's also some tricks that can be played. Right. to test whether someone is noble or not. And those that were not noble, which was the vast majority of them, weren't allowed into this council. They got all into a huff. They had their own council, and they called it the Mahayana. That's uh, Actually, the Mahasanga was the word that they used, and that was the birth Whoa. of the Mahayana. A separation, a schism. And that <laughs> schism was caused uh, accidentally by the nobles. If the nobles had not drawn that distinction themselves, then there would have been still the nobility there, but there would not have been this backlash mm. of the larger majority. Mm. Okay, So ponder this. How can you determine a noble? Have you ever heard of the expression that takes one to know one? Oh, yeah. Okay. So if you are a noble and you know what a noble is, then how can you determine when someone is noble or not? Because you know, you just know. You, you kind of know what to look for. You, or, can, you begin yeah. to learn what to look for, precisely, at all of the various levels. In fact, it's quite an education. But, but those who are, are not noble, they don't know. There are tricks that can be played. Yeah. 
they tell you one of the tricks, and I've seen monks do this in modern times. A small group of them who are together and already know what's going on will confront a new monk by asking him questions of the Dhamma, and no matter what he says, their answer is, no, you're wrong, you don't understand. They confront him with it. And the question is, if he is noble, how will he respond? Yeah. And if he is not noble, how will he respond? And now you're beginning to understand this is there are some tests that can be done, and this is one of them. This is one of the dirtiest, but this will do yeah. the job. <laughs> so Zen does that as well, don't they? Telling you, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was your question? Oh, um, uh, Zen does that as well, I think. Yes, yes, in Tibet also. Okay. This is not, a, this is not an unknown technique. <laughs> so, uh, what other kinds of tricks are there? Um... Getting someone to agree to something that you know is not correct. Yeah. So it, it it all it just tests it just tests how how deep their understanding is. Exactly. <laughs> and that in fact suttas are filled with these kind of questions. Oh. One, one of my favorites, by the way, is Sutta number 24. And the, 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 name uh, sutta, the, the name of the Sutta is the Relay, the Chariot Relay, uh, number 24 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and it is, in fact, Sariputta questioning a monk in this noble fashion. And at the end of the questioning, then uh, uh, they... Uh, make good friends because this monk was actually able to answer the questions and that in fact uh, uh, the answers to it is is utterly surprising the first question is uh, that Sariputta asks is Sila the path and the monk answers no and then the it's morality, then, right? Is, is morality the way? And uh, yeah. uh, the monk answers no. No. And so Sariputta asks, "Well, is uh, purification of the mind is that the path?" The monk says, "No." And then the next question was, "Well, is purification of you the path?" And the monk says, no. And then the next question is, is knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path? The answer is, is that the path? Knowledge and vision yeah. of the path? The answer is, no. No? And then, uh, Sariputta asks, and 
how about the knowledge and vision of treading the path? And the monk says, no. And then he says, well, what about the knowledge and vision of having completed the path? And the monk says, no. And so Sariputta then asked him for an explanation. And this is where the name of the sutta comes from, the chariot relay. And the monk says, imagine that the king is going to go from Saranath to Rajgiri, traveling by stages in a chariot uh, drawn by horses. And when he gets to the first relay station, is that the path? No, he's still got all of this left to go. And then when he gets to the second station, has he arrived? No. And so, therefore, have to see it as, in fact, this is actually a step-by-step sequence uh-huh. of doing the path that this monk is laying out for Sariputta, who already knows all of this stuff anyway. And so this is a clear example of this kind of testing that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I want to read that one now. <laughs> so this whole idea then of uh, that your knowledge can be tested, one of the ways that it gets tested is through um, discussion with peers. Because see, as long as you're just sitting in front of a teacher and listening and absorbing, Maybe whether you're even putting it in practice or not, that's not the same thing as real knowledge or real learning. That, uh, in fact, Socrates has that one nailed when he says that real learning is not gathering data. It's the ability to organize and put it back out. Yeah. And so real knowledge of, uh, of the Dhamma actually does need to be tested. Makes sense. And so there are two or three ways of testing. One is by the, the teacher testing by asking questions often nonchalant to make sure that the student's going in the right direction. Another one is when the students themselves begin to talk and argue over the Dhamma if, if one of them is noble then both of them will be. If both of them are not noble, they cannot talk each other into becoming noble. Sorry, it doesn't work like Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) But then the final grasp of it is when one is encouraged by his own teachers to become a teacher. And once we become a teacher, now we become determined. I'm going to actually be able to not just understand it, but understand it well enough that I can tell somebody else mm-hmm. so that they can understand it too. Yeah. That this is actually the, the transmission. That, in fact, very little can be transmitted in a book. Yeah. Some things can, but the real Dhamma, I, I have found that, and I've really, really grateful that I was around teachers such as Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and Achan Po and other monks that I'd been around so that I, I really got it from them. Mm. That Because they lived the Dhamma, they um, confronted each other with the Dhamma, uh, not confronted oh, in that way, but uh, uh, in, a, in a playful, teasing way, other things like that. Um, 
I remember many, many occasions where uh, that was the case, especially with Achan Po, who would sneak up behind and just whisper something. And and so I got to the point, he's not going to sneak up on me anymore. But he, when Achan Po is coming, I'm going to know it. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to play that game with me. And so that's a game that I play even with my own daughter. Oh, yeah? is that I sneak up on her, and if she's not paying attention, I'll do something. <laughs> like grab her cell phone or whatever. She And she's waking up. Boy, she won't let me within 10 feet of her now. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but in a, in a playful way. I mean, we're still close. We can hug yeah. and touch. Not, not like that, but in a, in a uh, um, showing up out of the blue. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff then that can be uh, done by nobles with nobles or to another where they can be tested. There's a lot of different ways of, of testing mm. so that people will reveal who they actually are. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. That kind of thing, it kind of, um, it shows you where you're at. Mm -hmm. And that builds confidence. Mm. Confidence in the Dhamma. Do you have the confidence to teach the Dhamma? Mm. Uh, nobody does in the beginning. That takes experience. That takes over and over again of and sometimes even screwing up and getting corrected and have to make changes. Mm -hmm. So now I know I'm saying the right thing. Exactly mm -hmm. that. So this is an important quality. Coming back to that point about how in that third council could the nobles determine who to let into the council? And the answer was clear and stark. And a lot of them who didn't get in didn't like it a bit. Mm. Uh, and the fact that they didn't like it also proved that they were the ones who were not noble. <laughs> yeah. Because if the noble been left out of it, he would have, uh, actually, he would have asked questions to his friends about it. Ask questions to his friends. Mm-hmm. Like, in what way was I wrong so that I was left out? Did I show signs of emotion, or what was it like that? And he can begin to find his way back in. I'm sure that it took a, a long time to make this selection process. It wasn't uh, some grand inquisitor kind of court. Everybody was brought in one at a time. It was nothing mm -hmm. like a movie or anything. It was all done just in friendly chats and conversations. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, more about that period of time, that was actually a time when there was a lot of war going on. And this is also the time when, surprisingly enough, when Buddhist statuary started appearing. That before that time, they had three um, uh, icons. One was the Bodhi leaf, another one was the Dhamma wheel, and a third one was a, a picture of a tree with a seed under it. So go to the, to the foot of a tree, 
and the Dhamma Chakra Pratta Sutta, and also that Bodhi from the Bodhi leaf, him being under the Bodhi tree, those were the three symbols. Nowadays, you'll see a lot of statuary. In Thai, uh, you'll, you'll find uh, Hoi Toi, uh, the Fat Buddha, all over. Um, yep. All that uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. But also some of the really ancient stuff that's in that area, because I've been in that area of India, uh-huh. uh, and some of it was uh, uh, copied and then set around at Watso and Mok. Mm-hmm. So you had this, and the question is, well, where did this statuary come from? And the answer to that is, this is Greek influence. The Greek came uh-huh. to India at the time of, and in fact, India has been invaded many times before, yeah. Uh, where we understand the uh, Indo-European language that is Pali, Magati, uh, uh, Hindi, and, and Sanskrit, etc. All of those languages were not originally indigenous. The Dravidian and Tamil were the uh, languages of uh, oh. uh, India of the time. Where did these other languages come from? The answer is, is that Mesopotamia, whatever happened, we don't really know why the Sumer civilization fell apart, but a lot of it wound up in India. Okay. And this is the Aryan line that the Buddha was in. So in before that time, and this, this is dating back 3500 B.C., Right. Way yeah. back there, okay, not 1500, not 3500, 2500 BC. Right. Okay. The time we're looking at uh, the 2500 BC era is when it appears a lot of stuff was going on, the flux, and this is where the Aryan race came out of Mesopotamia with the language uh, that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in India at that time, there had already developed a caste system that had only two castes, that of the Brahmins and that of everybody else. Oh. And so when, and this is only local in that particular area of India, not India-wide, Brahmins right, only okay. uh, influence and power later. But this is not the Vishnu, and this is not the Shivites, and this is not the uh, Kali and other things of Hinduism. This is really Brahmin and, and uh, uh, the we're better than everybody else kind of mentality that they had, including yep. being able to grab a hold of and control all of the land and make everybody else subservient to them. That's when this invasion came that the Buddha, that was the Buddhist clan. That's why he is known to be uh, taller, of lighter complexion skin, and okay. all of that was because this was his heritage, and they didn't much, mix much with the nobles. He was a Sakyan of the Sakyan clan. Okay. It was a, a noble clan uh, to where King Pasanati and um, uh, Bimbisara were more local. So um, the Brahmins then... With, with this invasion, the invasions always come in two layers, at least. Uh, there's many ways of looking at all the layers, but the two major layers is going to be uh, the dudes in charge, which would be the kings, the, the royalty, the military, the whole show. 
and then everybody else, the baggage carriers, the uh, uh, the animal uh, uh, keepers, the uh, food gatherers, the uh, uh, the those that become the merchant class once they settle down. So the wagoneers and all of that kind of crowd of people that, that goes in, in many of the ancient armies, that crowd of people was sometimes bigger than the the original expedition with the military and the army uh, uh, commanders and all of that kind of stuff. But as you know, an army travels on its stomach. Yeah. So this is the stomach then that travels along. Now you have four castes in India. You have the Brahmins on top, the Sudra on the bottom, and these two new class comes in, the Aryans and um, uh, the merchant class. Mm-hmm. And they begin to take over and begin to control the land again, and the Brahmins don't like it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so they're de- no, we're high class, we're Brahmins, and you're not Brahmin. We were born high class because we did good in the back in the old days. Now, this belief in, in Kama and reincarnation actually looks like, uh, according to some researchers, it got started about <clears throat> 800 B.C. By 800 B.C., it was already invaded into the Vedas. It was already there. <clears throat> so sometime um, in this dark period where we don't have a lot of history between the time that the Aryans came and the, and the um, Brahmins losing enough ground that they're making a stand in their religion of they've got a, 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 a right to be Brahmin and that they're better mm-hmm. than everyone else. And that's, that is actually the time that these four classes became solidified in India and they're still there today, even though there's laws against it in certain pockets of Indian. In fact, one of the ways that they have, uh, the Indian people themselves have found ways out of it is by, for instance, the soldiers will go to work for a Brahmin lady as a housekeeper. She'll mm-hmm. study her ways, study her language, and then after a while, with the meager amount of money that she's made, she'll go buy a, a sari for the Brahmin dress up in the Brahmin sari, stop wearing her sutra sari, get on a train, go to Bombay, and now she's Brahmin. <laughs> that was not possible in the old, old days, but it's nowadays is possible because of uh, uh, yep. the, uh, uh, the turmoil of India. So um, that class system has been there to this day. And so the Buddha was using words like Brahman and Aryan and changed the definitions to start to break up this caste society that had been there so long. One of them, and this is still the most beautiful part of Buddhism in India today, is when you join Buddhism and become part of the Buddhist culture, your caste is forgotten completely. Caste yeah, I heard about that side of uh, the, the Sangha of the Buddha, that everybody's the same once you come in. Yep. Uh, and the Brahmins don't like that a bit. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> because it, it uh, robs them of power. Uh, and Buddhism is broken out in the millions in certain pockets, uh, especially in Maharashtra states that I know of, uh, mostly due to Ambekar 
So the Indians are coming back to the roots that have been there all along. But uh, throughout history, there was always this competition with the Brahmins, and that competition became very ferocious in the time of uh, Ashok. There was also certain literatures that were written at that particular time that looks like that it was written to try to bring the magical belief systems of the Brahmins in more aligned with the teachings of the Buddha, and that literature uh, remains today in the form of the Dinga Nikaya. That, they, that it seems now that the Dinga Nikaya was not original from the time of the Buddha, that they collected stuff out of that and put into the suttas, but that this was actually Buddhist propaganda. Okay. And there's some really good stuff, very, very interesting, excellent stuff in the, in the uh, uh, Dinga Nikaya. Uh, can't knock it, but that it's actually perhaps 200 years after the death of the Buddha when this was actually written. Mm-hmm. And it didn't stop. Later came the commentaries, and then the Abhidhamma, and then the Vasudhimaga, and by then we're 500 A.D. Mm-hmm. But... Basically, the older the literature, the more interesting it is, is because we have more evidence that this comes actually from the Buddha. To where yeah, the later stuff makes sense. Uh, is better to um, to stay away from. And yet, uh, Theravada really has a lot of respect for the Visuddhimagga, especially in Sri Lanka and in Burma, and also in Thailand. That is very interesting. Robert and I have had conversations about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa over the years came out of the Vasudhimaga <clears throat> from being about, at one point, saying that about 95% of it is correct. And then he put some of that stuff in some of his own writings. Mm-hmm. But in later years, that book, along with the Abhidhamma now, is for him to be thrown into the ocean. Okay, he's got, actually, you, what happens is you find more and more and more problems with it until mm-hmm. you recognize we don't need it at all. But that was my introduction to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was because I was uh, in India reading the Vasudhimagga and met a monk oh. at the Thai Wat. And uh, he redirected me directly out of the Vasudhimagga towards Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Well, by then, by the 1980s, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was already well known in Thailand to be absolutely against everything, anything to do with the Vasudhimagga. Mm-hmm. But the thread that got it started was, is in the Vasudhimagga, there are three lifetime versions of Paticca Samapada, to where you already have enough to know that the way that I teach it is, with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's method is, and the Buddhist method is that this is how the mind works right now. Yep. You can go from here to here to here all the way into Dukkha right this very um, two, three seconds of time. Yep. But exactly. in the Maga, it says, oh no, there's three lifetimes. There's so a, that there's actual, it says the actual, old, uh, pardon? It says they're real, actual lifetimes, like reincarnation and stuff. Reincarnation kind of thing. Exactly. No moment to moment. And so uh, this was the point about the Vasudhimaga that 
was kind of like the loose thread that was just too obvious. Once you started pulling that thread, the whole Vasudhi Maga becomes to unravel. Oh. But the Vasudhi Maga itself is, in fact, uh, structured along this same sutta that we just discussed, and that is sutta number 24. So naturally, the Vasudhi Maga is going to start off with Sila. Then it's going to have chapters on uh, a purification of the mind. This is where all the magic stuff comes in. And then the purification of you, which is where he really kind of bungles it, because purification of you should bring you on out of oneself, rather than try to prove that there is a self that can be reborn. Yeah. And so when we begin to understand how the Vasudhi Maga was put together, we begin to understand, wait a minute, maybe this was not an ignorant document. Because a lot of people think that he was an ignorant fool, Buddhaghosa. What do I mean by an ignorant fool? That means that he was a scholar who knew, because of all the literature search and everything that they did, he knew how to write and all of that kind of stuff. But he didn't have the discernment because he didn't have the practice. So mm-hmm. he couldn't know what was real and what was not real. And so he winds up packing it with magic. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there's another way of looking at it. And this is the way, and that, by the way, what you just, what I just said, that's Vikku Buddha Dasa's kind way of looking at it. There's another one, a more vicious way of looking at it, and that is that Buddha knew what he was doing, and he was very sneakily trying to twist the Dhamma so that it could be wrongly understood and therefore not understood at all. Ah. That he, in fact, was Brahman. He was raised Brahman. He was born Brahman. He was Brahman, okay. And that uh, he actually wrote back to the Brahmins that this this book that I've just written, this should do the trick. But again, uh, later the Brahmins actually used the uh, um, the moguls to actually wipe out the Buddhists. The what? To wipe them out. They say that in the four, 13 and 1400s, that 80 to 100 million people were killed mm-hmm. in East India because wow. the Brahmins were able to get the, um, uh, the Muslims out of Turkey, the Mughals, the Mongols, to go do it. Mm-hmm. And they destroyed the temples. And basically what happened, though, was a lot of monks stayed monks. They just headed for the hills, literally, Tibet okay. and Laos and uh, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, and all over the place. And others stayed. There's many, many, many traditions of Buddhism that have become already part of Buddhist culture by then, and to this day remains. Though we can't uh, claim the, 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 the sacred cow, because that actually came from Jainism. Uh-huh. But we can claim those swamis still wear the orange robe that looks very much like the monk. Mm. Yep. And also the whole quality of um, uh, many aspects of um, moksha, for instance. The whole quality of one can be relieved because you see in Hinduism, 
It's just over and over and over and over again. Right. Uh, moksha means one can moksha be relieved. Means freedom. It means right now, get out of it. Come out of the. Come out of your uh, uh, bee pot or uh, crap hole or grave or whatever you want out of the mind right now and mm. be free from it. And that's uh, a whole quality that uh, uh, exists in Hinduism also. But um, that in fact many of the ideas that, that the Buddha had uh, were held by others. That there was a lot of interplay because people, in fact, everyone was really looking for the right path. And so there was a lot of right knowledge that was being picked up and the Buddha doesn't really claim any of it as belonging to him. He just happened to have been able to put things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An example of it, in fact, is the Eightfold to Noble Path, it, oh, excuse me, the Four Noble Truths. The oh, he didn't noble, come up with those? The Four Noble Truths is not from the Buddha. The Four Noble Truths mm. comes from Ayurvedic medicine. Oh. In the sense of the disease and the cause of the disease and the cure for the disease and the method or practice that leads to the end of the disease. This, this four-step four method was known before the time of the Buddha. He merely adopted it. Another example is the um, Satipatthana. Before the Satipatthana were the four foundations or the four main elements of earth, water, fire, and air, and he adopted that to body, feeling, mind, and mind's objects. But we know exactly where he got it from. Uh, Those four elements are in ancient, uh, uh, all over the place, including Greece. Both Greece and India held that belief, and the Buddha just grabbed hold of it, shook it apart, dusted Mm -hmm. it off, put it on the shelf for use. And so, um, the later literature of the Vasudhimaga and the commentaries, there's some things that are useful in there. One of them is the Pitisambhidhimaga. Uh, is also one of them. But much of it is merely a rehash and a re-putting together stuff that's already in the Dhamma. You could go so far as to say that it looks like that the teacher's teaching notes somehow got published as a brand new book in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But that happened time and again over the centuries so that we wound up with a wide variety of literature. And so when people will ask me, for instance, why don't you write a book? The answer is, is that we don't need any more books. Gosh, we've already got way too many. Yeah. I think um, it's better like this. The original teachings of the Buddha, where the, where the, you know, let's get them into the Anapanasati Sutra. Let's not, um, we don't. And here's an example is, is that almost anything and everything that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said was recorded. Almost everything that was recorded was written down in the Thai and is online now. And Mm. so now all of the English language people are furiously trying to convert any and everything out of whatever Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said in the moment as a whole book. That's how it got started. But there are so many Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa books and many of them are quite excellent. They've got really interesting ways of looking at things. 
But he's only really teaching what's in the suttas. Uh-huh. It all goes back to what the actual Buddha taught. And so in that regard, uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Das is very much uh, what is referred to as an anti-asok, or in Thailand there's actually a movement called Santiasok. And what this his whole thing is, is that let's take Buddhism back to the time before uh, the Asok event, which means we're going to uh, basically kind of ignore all of the later literature from the Ding and the Kaya and all of the commentaries and the Abhidhamma and the Vasudhimaga and, the, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. No, we're going to throw that kind of stuff or at least put it on the shelf or maybe in the ocean. Who cares what happens to it? Because we're going after the right stuff, which is actually the suttas. So which suttas are the ones... Um, so uh, that um, MN is one oh, of those okay. ones. Yeah, the Majjhima Nikaya which actually means the, uh, the middle-length uh, sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, is actually the work that was more or less done in completion uh, around the death of the Buddha. This was right. the result of the First Council. But there are some suttas in there that actually after the, the Buddha's death. For instance, Ananda has a couple of suttas that are in there that are actually after the death of the Buddha. So we do right. know that Ananda had a great deal to do with the, uh, the compilation of the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. Mm-hmm. But the Majjhima Nikaya was the outcome of the First Council. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first thing that was done. There's, there's a, a story uh, that comes somehow from Sri Lanka that says that uh, it was not until the first century, I think, A.D., where all of the stuff of the Buddha was collected together into one library or one package, into the Tripitaka. But that's easily then, uh, by the magical-minded, translated into nothing was ever written down until then, because mm-hmm. that's clearly not the case. Uh-huh. No, in fact, we go right back to Ahsoka wrote, Ahsoka wrote stuff down, folks. <laughs> he made pillars. We've dug them up. There's <laughs> <laughs> museums full of the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so we know this stuff was written down about the Buddha before uh, the Sri Lankan story. But yes, we'll give them credit for collecting everything together. But they gathered way much too much, in fact, in, in some cases. And um, each of the Nikayas has its own story. I've just given you the oh. story of the Dinga Nikaya and the Majjhima Nikaya. There's also the Samyutta, the Angatara, and the Kundana Nikaya. These three are left. Now, the Samyutta Nikaya is, is called kindred sayings. And what that means is, is that things that belong together are collected together. So there's going to, and there's uh, 50 or 60 different chapters. And one of the chapters is going to be on jhana. Another one is going to be on uh, uh, stream entry. And a lot of stuff like that, okay. But one of the things that we know about the Samyutta Nikaya is it is also quite recent. That in oh, okay. fact, this could have also been from uh, in, 
it actually looks like that it got added to and collected upon so that there's a mixture of both really old and really new. The same thing is with the Angataranakaya, but it also, some of it looks really old and some of it looks really new. Mm-hmm. And then the Kundanakaya is the same way, except that we've got better definitions because the Kundanakaya has like 18 to 23 different documents, depending upon which country you go to. I think Burma has the most of these. Okay. And that there are some of the most ancient stuff that is defined as a work there. In the Kundanakaya, you will find the following. The Udana, the Samyutanakaya, the Terigitha, and the Teragitha. The Terigitha and the Teragitha are actually poems and stories that were written by monks in the lifetime of the Buddha and collected together at that time. They were actually stories, things written down by monks and nuns. And uh, one of them is really funny in the sense that, boy, I'm glad I don't have a husband anymore. <laughs> wow, he was just so much work. <laughs> And then um, the next one is the Udana, which has some of the most ancient. And then, uh, and then the one that's the most curious is uh, the Sutta Nipata. And the Sutta Nipata is organized by, by chapter and verse, with the, with the chapters having chapter headings and verses and all of that. And now we know that there are suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha is actually referring to suttas in the Sutta, uh, uh, Sutta Nipata by oh. name and verse. Really? So, really. So we're talking about that it is known that things were written in the time of the Buddha, written down. And that some of the stuff in the Sutta Napata is really mind-blowing in the sense of it's got things like the Papita Samapada, but not all 12 steps. It only has about five or six of the steps in there. So you can see through that that actually some of the teachings went through stages. Right. Uh, that some of the things that you'll see in the, in the Sutta Napata uh, as good advice, winds up actually being part of the Paddy Mock. Later, they became actually rules or uh, standards of behavior. And that one of these is argument. In the Sutta Pitaka, uh, uh, I forgot. Sutta Pitaka is the book. And in there, there's a uh, one of the um, the suttas is about not arguing. Right. Don't get into arguments with people. Now you can actually tell by the way that this one is uh, written and phrased, is that this is the Buddha's new injunction to brand new monks in the early days of his ministry. Right. But not go around arguing because that was, in fact, the standard of uh, uh, everything. In fact, this is what we were talking about earlier about confronting a monk with does he know what he's talking about? Well, the Sutta Nipata is now saying 
don't, don't do, do that. that. Yeah. Don't do that. Why? Because he was not referring to within the monks themselves. He was referring to the monks and not arguing with people on the outside. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so some people would say there's a dichotomy there. No, there's no dichotomy at all. This is over mm -hmm. time and also over uh, the observation that this is very early literature and that the Buddha's concept back in the beginning was let's make friends with everybody because if we can get them to trust us, then we can get them to listen to us. Mm, yep. If they don't trust us, they're not going to listen to us. Exactly. And arguing with them is not going to convince them of anything. You never win an argument. That's one of the funny things about argument. Everybody goes in with the intention of winning the argument, and no argument ever has ever been won. <laughs> Every argument is lost on both sides. <laughs> yep. Because look at how bad they wind up feeling. Nobody feels like a champion. Everybody feels disgusted with the other dude. <laughs> Everyone's fired up. Everyone gets fired up. No need for an argument at all. <laughs> and so this is the advice uh, that uh, the Buddha recommends, is find a place of agreement. Yep. Find where we understand the teachings of each other. That, uh, that is important for good meditation teachers in the West, because it's going to multiply, it's going to grow. It's important we not nitpick with each other. Uh, oh, my Anapanasaki, better than yours. You ought to do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear that coming, can't you? In fact, yeah. it's already there. <laughs> and so um, that whole quality then of non-argument is, is a really important point, that this business of uh, confronting someone is only in rare and special occasions, and I think that even the Third Council, it may have not been a good idea to even hold it. Mm -hmm. Because it did cause division in the Sangha, uh, unbeknownst to those who, uh, let us say, guarded the door, not realizing that those who were not let in would go off and do their own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's this, really interesting. Yeah, it's a smattering of history that uh, it, ah. it really puts some uh, uh, interest into um, how things got going. So um, another part of the Kundana Nikaya uh, is uh, the Udana. And in the Udana, this is where we find a lot of very interesting and curious things including the Udana, is the actual um, information about the death of the Buddha that is eventually then incorporated into the uh, sutta called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, number 16, in the Dinganakaya. We actually have the source material for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know that that was put together during the time of Asoka, but we've got the original original literature that was done right yep. at the time of the death of the Buddha. Now we also have another kind of literature in the Kundana Nikaya, and this is the stuff that we know that's clearly, clearly later. And that is some of the ceremonial stuff 
like for instance the uh, um, uh, the taking of the triple gem and the five precepts and this kind of literature ceremonial oh. stuff comes much later after the time of the Buddha that in fact in that group will also be the actual uh, let us say standing traditional ordination ceremony but we also know that in the time of the Buddha that the Buddha did not have a, a, a substantial ordination ceremony it was uh, uh, Okam monk yeah I notice in the suttas um, you know it's always the um, it's always the outsider deciding they're going to join and then that's that there's no ceremony or anything so in the beginning, there was very little ceremony. Where did the ceremonies come from? They come from necessity. Necessity? Necessity. All right. One of the necessities has to do with good health. Because a lot of people were joining the Sangha, you see, at one time. Um, the Sangha of the Buddha, and this has happened in Thailand also, that the actual teachings of the Buddha that's been let free by Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and his help has predominated among the um, uh, highly educated, the doctors, the lawyers, especially the judiciary, uh, as well as the aristocrats, there yeah. and the, uh, uh, the big universities have clubs of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. Okay. But the masses of people still hold on to the traditional form of Buddhism that then that traditional form of Buddhism never really did overcome the original animism of, of Thailand, which did have spirit, spirit houses, trees, sacred trees, right. goats, all of that kind of stuff. And so Thailand, you see Thai movies, oh, do they love them Chinese uh, ghosts. The oh, yeah? Listen, hot. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's all of that old traditional stuff out of Thailand that is also part of the villagers' mentality. But what I'm getting at now is, is that the same thing happened in the time of the Buddha, that it was the educated, the high class, the Brahmins themselves um, yep. were the ones who experienced the loss of uh, their their um, their population because people were coming flocking to the Buddha, and another group that came were the um, were the the medical people, the physicians, okay. the very Ayurvedic doctors. They almost all of them because of their high class education and on also the fact that the Buddha had adopted their whole method and modality of Ayurvedic medicine of the Four Noble Truths, they came in good, which meant that now in the normal society there was a Darth of doctors, because mm. they had all become monks. So they which came for health. Now that people were wanting to become monks just so that they could get medical attention by the, mm -hmm. the monks who cared for the monks rather than caring for the average population anymore. Mm. Okay, because the monks generally retired, but they did piddle with their medical stuff within the Sangha. Yep. But that meant a whole lot of people wanted to become monks who didn't want to become monks because they wanted liberation for the mind. They just wanted a doctor's appointment. 
So that gives rise then to part of the ordination of there's a series of questions that are asked and that the um, ordinate has to say nate bante, which means no, I don't have this, sir. So that nate bante, uh, luckily, uh, learning the ordination myself and memorizing, I didn't have to memorize these words, but somebody did. And they're very long poly words that have to do with epilepsy, smallpox, diphtheria, um, uh, tuberculosis, uh, the kind of things that are in fact communicable diseases that were known in the time. So anybody who had a communicable disease like tuberculosis join. was not allowed to join the Sangha. Uh. Also, another thing that was put into the ordination because of squabbles that happened from time to time, uh, these restrictions were put on. One is that someone cannot be in debt because if he joins the Sangha, then the, uh, the debtor, the debt collector will try to make the Sangha responsible. He joined your group, you've got to pay his debt now, right? Yeah. So another one would, would be wanted by the law. Now, even yeah. that being true, the Buddha himself broke that law himself. So that means that this law is something that came in much later. How did he break the law? Of, uh, the, the, the story is of Angulimala, who was a fugitive. He was a fugitive from justice because he went around killing people. And he killed people so that he could collect one of their fingers. And they put the finger then on a necklace because he had to carry it around with him because he had to deliver a thousand fingers from a thousand people to this Brahmin that had put a curse on him. In fact, the curse was the Brahmin's daughter. You can have my daughter, but you've got to go kill a thousand people. So this Whoa. is the story of Angulimala. Now you hear the word ang Anguli, which is the word for finger. Mala, finger necklace. Oh. And the Buddha went out and found him and had a conversation with him and got him to stop what he was doing. This was actually the story is that this was a young Brahmin student who was very, very dedicated to the religion. And this was quite a curse that this old Brahmin had put on him to get rid of him. Okay. And boy, did it get rid of him, you know, because he was gone and the girl, you know, and so now the Brahmin can sell his daughter to whoever he wants to. Mm -hmm. But that was the story behind it. And so then Angulimala comes and becomes a monk. And the story then, one of them is, is that he goes into a village for alms and they start throwing sticks and clods and all kinds of stuff at him raising Cain because they recognized him. They saw who he was and they knew him. And uh, uh, the Buddha uh, came back and is, uh, with a laugh and said, yeah, well, I'm glad that they did that because otherwise you'd gotten it worse later sometime. Now you know where to go and where not to go. You learned your lesson there. Yeah. So at the end of the sutta now is the point that I was making, and that is, is that here come King Pasanati with the cavalry looking for Angulimala. Right. And they run across this group of monks with the Buddha standing there, and, and you can see the Buddha's gesture. He's looking right at Gangulimala, and then he says to the king, 
do you see who you're looking for here? Well, King Passanati was already a student to the Buddha. He was really, really close. They were good uh -huh. friends. And so, naturally, Angulimala is going to be pointed right out by the Buddha. He's going to look right at him. And then he's going to say, do you see who you're looking for here? And what King Passanati got from that was the Buddha has already solved the problem. This man has been rehabilitated. There's no reason for us to punish him. And so King Passanati left. So this is a uh, this is such a wonderful story, not because of any magic, awesome, yeah. but the the magic of the story really is the story of uh, the Buddha looking at things from the perspective of rehabilitation. Yeah. And there's Instead many of places in, in, in there is no punishment. I know of monks that uh, when it happened, I was really surprised that nobody did anything, and this was a major parajika. What's that? Actually, the story is it's a it's a um, um, uh, it's it's a top dog. There are four parajikas. The parajikas meant that if a monk does any of these things, he's no longer a monk. He's automatically mm -hmm. cut off, just like a mm -hmm. palm tree cut off at the stump. It's not like a maple tree and will grow back. Mm -hmm. But this cuts it off, and there are four of them. One of them is about lying about your uh, uh, noble status. Another one would be killing a human being. Another one would be stealing a particular piece of property. And for some reason, sex is put into that. But I know about that sex business for sure because I have seen it in the Sangha twice. Once in the Lao community and once in the Cambodian community. And in fact, the Lao community was quite a joke. Because this monk moved out of Chicago to the temple that I was at in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, about three or four or five weeks later, some dude from Chicago speaking Lao language comes looking for this guy all in a rage because of his wife. <sighs> now, I don't know any of the story much more than that, but nothing happened. Okay. Nothing happened. The guy finally blew his steam and went back to Chicago because he's got his wife in Chicago. Who wants his wife now? This monk actually left to mm -hmm. get out of the situation, and this guy follows him. Mm -hmm. And when the Lao people in Charlotte heard about it, you know what they did? What? <laughs> <laughs> so much for the Parajikas. Yeah. In other words, everything is forgivable so long as we take care of the situation so that things are facilitated. Well, the problem we saw the monk moved out. He moved all the way to Charlotte. That's, what, a thousand miles away. Now, that's rehabilitation in some form yeah. or another. Yeah. Get out of there. Okay. And so um, I have found that true in other things. Uh, that um, one Here's one way of looking at it. A young monk who has made some transgression, the other monks do not want his family to know about it because out of their shame and loss of face, they'll pull him right out of the Sangha. They'll take yep. him home, beat him or something, but it won't give him a chance. So the monks will not, in fact, tell the family when a monk has done wrong. They want to keep him mm. in the monkhood and rehabilitate him. 
Yeah, that's um, it's definitely a better approach. That's the entire teaching of the Buddha is friendship. Yeah. We don't beat up our friends because they break our rules. Mm. We rehabilitate them. That's the way of looking at it. That's that's so uh, deeply embedded or ingrained into the teachings of the Buddha. And you can see it all over the place like that, from the story about uh, Angulimala. And you can also see that later, those rules then crept in because now the organization of monks, the Sangha, becomes more important than the mind of any individual monk. Mm-hmm. That's a very strange concept, to change of mind. The Buddha would be able to see the welfare of each individual monk within the organization. Now the later monks are saying, wait a minute, the organization is more important than any particular monk, and we're not even going to let them in mm-hmm. because he owes money or something like that. Or we're going to kick somebody out because they broke one of the rules or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's another sutta that talks about it, uh, that part of the path, the fourth knowledge, in fact, that we've already talked about, that fourth knowledge of dukkha, dukkha naroda, means that I do want to apologize and to make up for what I've done wrong. I want to rehabilitate. But most people don't want to go through the apology process because they're stuck on the quality of um, retribution or punishment. Mm. So I don't want to own up to it because I'm afraid of punishment. But if there's no punishment involved, there's only uh, not forgiveness, but rehabilitation. rehabilitation yeah, then, and then there's nothing thing. stopping you. Pardon? And then there's nothing stopping you from apologizing and owning up to it. Exactly. Because we haven't lost anything. In fact, we can apologize with with grace and aplomb and joy. Wow, did I screw that one up? And I can make up for it. I can become rehabilitated. And I not only am I not ever going to do that for you again. I'm not ever going to do that for anybody anymore. I quit. I cut that out. I am not going to call you a jackass ever again or anybody <laughs> else, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and so. That's the rehabilitation quality of it. If we work with the punishment model, oh, everybody's going to go to hell if they don't do what I told them to do, then that always causes division. There's always going to be division from that perspective. But when we come from the perspective of everybody's a friend, now we don't want to punish our friends. We want to rehabilitate them. And we expect the same from them towards us. And so this is why the Sangha is really is a Sangha. This is, in fact, why we're beginning to understand the nature of the Sangha is the nature of a community of friends. Yeah. But it's not some organization that's been on politics and has some political per- perspective or uh, merely the power over being able to make other people do what you want them to do, which is what some gurus get into. Uh. And this is also the quality that I have seen is is that the teachers really want to share their students with other teachers. To where the in the Western mentality is that this is I, me, and mine, my students. 
to wherein the, the, the Dhamma know we're all friends together. Yep. And, and that uh, the Dhamma is good wherever it may be found. Mm. What does that rack on our selfishness? Oh, I don't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want to keep it all myself. <laughs> it's very different here in the West. Well, we have piddled around with this one, give, doing some history and some other things like that. Talked about the five condas. Uh, there's a whole lot more to say. I just barely scratched the surface on any of the topics that we've covered today. Oh, that's, uh, that's really good to know. All right. Well, we'll finish it off now and call back when you've got actual questions. I'm sorry we just got off to the topic of whatever you wanted to talk about, but... Uh, Oh, that was actually really interesting, and um, yeah, I'm actually um, quite interested to know more. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's what you do: go to a, go to Google and start uh, googling some of these words like a soak. Yep. Yep. We'll okay. do. Okay. Uh, uh, the uh, um, Deer Park, Varanasi, some of the places around the time of the Buddha, and it'll start giving some history of that place. Yeah, all right, will do. Especially the one on a soak, because there's a huge Wikipedia article. Okay. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I'll have, a, I'll have a read of that, definitely. Good speaking to you, Damarato. <laughs> really good to be with you. I enjoy our talks. Mm, me too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.